Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to suicide and sexual assault. It also contains a description of mass murder. Listener discretion is advised. It's Thursday the 8th of June, 1871, and Dr James Patrick Murray is leaving wintry Melbourne in his wake. Six weeks ago, he bought the brig Carl, and now he's taking the ship and five business partners to the South Sea Islands. Their agreement? Buy land in the New Hebrides or the Fijis and establish a cotton plantation. Each of the respectable young partners has paid Dr Murray £50 as his share in the venture and some of this money has been invested in supplies, including six horses and a lot of farming equipment. More of the money has and will be spent on crew for the Carl. When they get to the islands, Dr Murray and the partners will together decide on a plot of land. Dr Murray will buy it from the natives, and he'll supply the labour to turn the property into a plantation. For his part in getting them there and setting them up, Dr Murray will be taking a cut of the cotton profits. In the meantime, he's liquid thanks to mortgaging the ship and fares paid by a handful of passengers he's conveying to the South Seas. Some of the crew believe they're taking part in a pearl fishing expedition and indeed this is what Dr Murray has told his mortgage holders. As the ship sails out of Melbourne's Hobson's Bay, what do these partners, passengers and crew members think of the man who owns Carl and who controls this expedition? That they're all aboard most of them having paid for the privilege, indicates a lot of trust. Come a cropper in the South Seas, as the newspapers often remind readers, and you might become a cannibal supper. Given it's not out of the realm of possibility that they might face such dangers and turn to Dr Murray for leadership, it begs the question, how much do they know about the man? Most of the partners and passengers have to be aware of his infamy. 
After all, it was only five years ago that this Dr. Murray was the most hated character in the colony. The coward who abandoned the Leichhardt recovery expedition, causing a chain of events that left its leader and several other men dead. Since then though, Dr. Murray has become a husband and father and earned respect in Melbourne as a doctor, medical writer and health officer. Maybe by now, all is forgiven. Dr. Murray has a way with words and is nothing if not persuasive in his personality. In respect to the unfortunate events of 1866, there's every chance that those aboard Carl believe Dr. Murray was more sinned against than sinner. Even so, perhaps some of them do wonder at his judgement in hiring two skippers for this voyage. By the time Carl reaches the heads, they're at loggerheads, and Captain Flynn hits Captain Hardy. Dr. Murray sides with the former, pays the latter £5 and puts him ashore. This is hardly a major maritime incident, but it shows the result of Dr. Murray's poor judgement. It also shows, beyond doubt, who's ultimately in charge of this journey. A journey that will take Dr. Murray, the partners and Carl crew members to the sunny South Seas and into a heart of darkness beyond the imagination of even Joseph Conrad. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's Slave Ship Massacre. As I said in part one, we know about the Carl Massacre because those involved confessed and turned on each other. In this instalment and in part three, you're going to hear of these atrocious deeds. And as you'll hear, there were conflicting versions of who did what and who, if anyone, was giving the orders. This wasn't simply men remembering things differently. It was men turning on each other to try to save their own skins. You'll hear some of these multiple viewpoints and maybe you'll think some men were less guilty than others. But what's in no doubt is that this was one of the worst crimes in our history, and it was made worse by one of the worst failings of the Australian and British legal systems. How the Carl Massacre has been almost completely forgotten is beyond me. If, like me, you think it's an important story that deserves to be better known, I'd appreciate it if you share this episode with whoever you think might be interested. Slavery was outlawed through the British Empire in 1833. But from 1863, the recruitment of labour from the South Seas was allowed, under the conditions described in Part 1. Briefly, the islanders were to voluntarily agree to three-year contracts and were to have full understanding of the terms, their meagre pay and their conditions, which included their return home when their employment was over. While Ben Boyd, for whom Ben Boyd National Park and Ben Boyd Road are named, had in 1847 been responsible for kidnapping and enslaving Polynesians to work on his Australian properties, his pioneering blackbirding efforts were failures. But in 1863, the idea was revived by Robert Towns, for whom Townsville is named. He wanted South Pacific labour for his Queensland cotton plantations. Mr. Towns hired a disgraced Royal Navy sailor turned pirate turned sandalwood trader named Henry Ross Lewin to do this work. Despite Mr. Towns saying that he and Mr. Ross Lewin were following the letter of the law, the blackbirding expeditions progressively became more brutal. In 1867, Mr. Ross Lewin went into the blackbirding business for himself. On the 26th of April that year, he placed on the front page of the Brisbane Courier what has to be one of the most shocking advertisements in Australian history. 
Addressed to sugar planters, cotton owners and others, Mr Ross Lewin set out his experience in the South Sea Island labour trade, including that he'd worked for Mr Towns. Now, he begged, quote, to inform his friends and the public that he intends immediately visiting the South Seas and will be happy to receive orders for the importation of South Sea natives. People favouring him with orders could, quote, rely on having the best and most serviceable natives to be had among the islands. Of course, what's an ad without setting out the price? So Mr Ross Lewins finished with, quote, terms, £7 each man. Anyone with £7 could come and see him at his place in South Brisbane and buy an islander man or woman. What you did with them after that? Well, that was your business. According to Edward Weiberg Docker's 1970 book The Blackbirders, Ross Lewin and his partners and accomplices brought over 1,200 islanders back to Queensland in 1867-1868. That was 10 times as many as in any previous 12-month period. Missionaries allege that Mr Ross Lewin was kidnapping these people, using ploys such as destroying their canoes and plucking islanders out of the water, and going ashore dressed as missionaries to entice natives aboard his slave ships. In 1868, Mr Ross Lewin and a business partner, Thomas Pritchard, bought an old ship named Daphne. Daphne's first human cargo to Queensland included a 13-year-old girl that Mr Ross Lewin had kidnapped and raped. He then passed her on to one of his crewmen. When Daphne reached Queensland, this girl was sold to a plantation owner for £20. Rape charges were levelled against Mr Ross Lewin, but he was acquitted in court in early 1869. Despite this not guilty verdict, he quit Queensland to live full-time on his plantation on Tanner in Vanuatu. But he still controlled the ship Daphne, and with his business partner Mr Pritchard aboard, was still in the kidnapping business. The ship, which was licensed to carry 58 legally recruited people, came into Levuka in Fiji in April 1869 with more than 100 kidnapped blackbirds. For the past few months, the British Royal Navy's man-of-war Rosario, under the command of Captain George Palmer, had been touring the islands looking to enforce anti-slavery laws. Captain Palmer boarded Daphne. He described it this way in his 1871 memoir, Kidnapping in the South Seas. Quote, we found her a small schooner of 48 tons register, fitted up precisely like an African slaver, minus the irons, with 100 natives on board, who had been brought here from the New Hebrides. They were stark naked and had not even a mat to lie upon. The shelves were just the same height as might be knocked up for a lot of pigs, no bunks or partitions of any sort being fitted, and yet the vessel was inspected by a government officer at Queensland. The islanders, Captain Palmer said, were, quote, squatting about, looking emaciated and frightened. Daphne's logs and papers were a bundle of falsehoods and discrepancies. Captain Palmer went on, quote, This, combined with the fact that there was no interpreter and Ross Lewin figuring as a principal actor in the entire transaction, determined me to seize the vessel and land her cargo of human beings at once, on the suspicion that the vessel, master, supercargo and crew had been engaged, if not in actual slaving, at least in a most irregular traffic, tending to promote and encourage the slave trade. Captain Palmer impounded Daphne, arrested the ship's Captain Daggett and Ross Lewin's business partner, Mr Pritchard, and took them to Sydney, where they faced the water police court. The magistrate dismissed the case, saying there was no evidence the islanders had been obtained illegally or treated as slaves. 
Adding insult to injury, the New South Wales Supreme Court's Chief Justice, Sir Alfred Stephen, ruled that Captain Palmer had seized Daphne illegally and was liable to pay £200 costs. Further, Justice Stephen said that the labour trade was legal and the Queensland Government was to be praised for managing it in such humane fashion. In the middle of the following year, the British Secretary of State would approve of Captain Palmer's actions and authorise payment of his expenses from the Treasury. But of course, this did nothing to punish Captain Daggett, Henry Ross Lewin or his business partner Thomas Pritchard. Aspiring blackbirders could thus take heart from the case, which was all over the newspapers in 1869 and 1870. The message appeared to be this. If you were unlucky enough to be caught, you'd more likely slip through a legal loophole than find your neck in a noose. As with Dr James Patrick Murray's past, most everybody on board Carl in June 1871 would have known of the Daphne case. But according to their later claims, it wouldn't have been anything to worry the five partners, even though they were heading to the South Sea Islands to establish a cotton plantation. That was because Dr. Murray would, of course, follow the letter of the law when obtaining their labour. The business partners had as their leader Harry Clark Mount. Born in 1833 in Montreal, Canada, he was 20 years old when, as found in passenger records at Ancestry.com.au, he arrived in Melbourne aboard the ship Fanny. The Geelong advertiser recorded the arrival. That was because his father, Dr Henry Mount, was the ship's surgeon and during the voyage a drunken crew member had stabbed the captain. Dr Henry Mount had attended to the badly wounded skipper and gave evidence in the trial that saw the sailor sentenced to 10 years for inflicting grievous bodily harm. So young Harry Mount had experience of bloody crimes on the high seas. The Mount family settled at Ballarat. Dr. Henry Mount practiced medicine, and he played a minor role in a bizarre side story to the town's most infamous 19th century celebrity visit. Very briefly, in March 1856, Irish dancer Lola Montez, who had the previous month whipped a Ballarat newspaper editor over a bad review, had angry words with her impresario, Mr. Crosby, about payment due for her performances. But Mrs. Crosby took exception to this argument, and she attacked Lola with a whip, also grabbing her by the hair and beating her about the head and neck. Dr. Henry Mount was called in to tend to Lola Montez and to provide a medical certificate stating that her wounds meant she couldn't take the stage that night. So Mr. Crosby, who was a prized dope, went before the theatre audience with the medical certificate to explain why his star performer wasn't going to appear. Then he brought his own wife onto the stage, introducing her as the whipperess of the whipperess of whippers. It went down about as well as you'd expect, and there was a near riot in the clamour for refunds. In the decade that followed, young Harry Mount worked the land and achieved a modicum of local fame as one of Ballarat's best horsemen and steeplechase riders. His prowess endeared him to the poet Adam Lindsay Gordon, and the two men became partners in a stables business that was sadly destined to fail. Dr James Patrick Murray was also a keen horseman, and it's likely he was familiar with Harry Mount through this interest, and or their common friend Adam Lindsay Gordon, before he committed suicide in June 1870. So when Dr Murray came up with the Carl plan, he invited Harry Mount to come aboard. Another partner was William Charles Morris, a 21-year-old Englishman who'd come to Australia as a baby. 
Then there was 25-year-old Raby Wilson, originally from Tasmania, who'd worked as a station manager on the far south coast of New South Wales. Rounding out the partners were William Scott and a Mr Groot, whose wife and young daughter were also aboard. Carl's other passengers included an elderly single woman named Miss Chapman and a man named James Bell, both of whom had plantations on the island of Tanner, where Henry Ross Lewin still had his plantation. Carl's voyage to Fiji took 20 days, with seas so rough that one of the horses died and the other five arrived badly weakened. The ship's cook, a man named Binstead, would later say that during the journey, Harry Mount had said to him that once they dropped the passengers, they'd all be going blackbird hunting. But Mr Mount and the other partners would deny they'd known Dr Murray's plan, much less been in on it from the start. Fiji was then the centre of the South Sea's cotton boom, made possible by land bought cheap from islanders and worked for next to nothing by blackbirded labour. The capital, Levuka, was a wild west town set on a mile of tropical beachfront. It was home to some 600 Europeans, and many of them were fugitives from Australia, New Zealand and the Americas. These men drank, and they drank, and they drank, in the port's 50 pubs, bars and carver saloons. In her 1883 book, At Home in Fiji, Constance Frederica Gordon Cumming described the place around the time of Carl's arrival, quote, Ships needed no chart to bring them to Fiji, for they would find the way marked by floating gin bottles, increasing in numbers as they approached the group. Those were the days when men meeting at noonday to discuss grave matters of business found their deliberations assisted by a jug of raw gin, to be drunk in tumblers as other men would drink water. Another colonist, a Dr Lytton Forbes, wrote in his 1875 memoir, Two Years in Fiji, quote, the amount of drinking that went on, and indeed in Lavuka generally, was sometimes portentous. Although it had fallen to my lot to see some heavy drinking in America, in upcountry villages, and in gold diggings in Australia, Fiji outdid all former experiences. Here, every man seemed harassed by a perpetual thirst and drank freely and often. Not to invite a stranger to drink with you was considered mean. To refuse to pledge him was a positive insult. Once Carl arrived at this drunken and disorderly seaside outpost, Dr Murray sacked Captain Flynn and most of the crew. The skipper's dismissal was apparently at the request of the business partners, who'd taken a dislike to the man over the past three weeks. Dr Murray promoted ship's mate Joseph Armstrong to captain and promised him the handsome salary of £20 per month. He also retained an Austrian-born sailor in his late 20s named Matteo Deviscove and appointed him as cook and steward. The cabin boy, James Fallon, also stayed on. To make up the rest of the crew, Dr Murray went to that boozy Lavuka waterfront. The men that he hired were, in the words of plantation owner John Young, who we'll meet soon, the very scum of Fiji. Not just scum, Mr Young would say, but criminals who had, quote, kidnapped and murdered islanders while in other vessels. Among the new hires were Charles Dowden, who'd be first mate, a Mr Lewis, who'd become second mate, and a sailor named George Heath. Then there was a man called Portuguese Joe, a sailor going by Mick, and two Islander men. The reputations of this new crew, Mr Young would say, must have been known to British Consul Edward March, who had authority over Her Majesty's subjects at Lavuka. 
Consul March was responsible for issuing legal labour recruiting certificates and for inspecting labour vessels. Once Dr Murray had gotten a labour certificate in his new captain's name, Consul March inspected Carl and met the crew, telling them to be good boys and to do no kidnapping. At Lavuka, the partners bought enough cotton seeds to plant 100 acres. According to the partner Raby Wilson, the partners wanted to buy land and settle at Fiji, but Dr Murray refused, saying their agreement said Fiji or the New Hebrides. The latter islands were where land was cheaper, so they needed to do their due diligence by going there. The partners would claim they didn't approve of Dr Murray taking a recruiting licence. But because all their cash was tied up in the expedition, they now had no choice but to go along. With Dr Murray setting the course and the newly minted Captain Joseph Armstrong commanding the crew, Carl sailed southwest from Lavuka for the island of Tanner. The ship arrived there around the 19th of July. Mr Wilson would say that Dr Murray had made some sort of arrangement with the partner Mr Groot and with Miss Chapman regarding land at Tanner, but now Dr Murray said he had to back out. The story about Tanner that would later get some currency went like this. Dr Murray had started an argument with Mr Groot and with his passenger James Bell. He then forcibly put them ashore at Tanner along with Mrs Groot and their daughter and Miss Chapman. But the island was then in the middle of a savage cannibal war. Messieurs Bell and Groot were quickly killed and eaten by the islanders, and the women and the little girl survived only with the help of a missionary who got them safely onto another ship that then took them back to Melbourne. This tale is gruesome, and it does fit with Dr Murray's previous perfidy. But it's also not true. Mr Groot may have abandoned the partnership and gone ashore with his family following a falling out with Dr Murray. There might also have been bad blood with James Bell and Miss Chapman. But as we've heard, Miss Chapman and Mr Bell already had land at Tanner, so they'd actually reached their destinations. In any event, on the 27th of July, Mr Bell and his business partner, not Mr Groot, were on the way to Henry Ross Lewin's plantation when they were attacked and murdered by five Islander men. Their remains were not cannibalised. As horrible as this crime was, it's one atrocity that does not seem to be attributable to Dr James Patrick Murray. What did happen at Tanner before this, according to Mr Deviscove, was that Carl's Captain Armstrong ordered some of the sailors to abduct some islanders to serve as boat's crew. The sailors refused, saying he should have hired more men back at Lavuka. This blatant refusal of orders caused Mr Mount and the other partners to whisper that if they were in charge, they would see that their commands were carried out by the crew. First mate Dowden heard them saying this and threatened them with a revolver, which led to Captain Armstrong to tell him to back off. It would seem that tensions were running very high from early in their trip through the islands. Carl's next stop was Havana Harbour on the island of Afate in Vanuatu. Here they met plantation owner Mr John Young, who'd been resident for three years. Mr Young would say that in that time, he'd never once had cause to raise a weapon at the islanders, though he had been harassed and intimidated by white slavers. This was the man who thought Carl's crew was scum. Nevertheless, he appeared willing to advise Dr Murray and the partners in their search for land. The partners liked what they saw and agreed that this was the place for a plantation. Meanwhile, the men of Carl traded with islanders. 
At one point, there were 50 Polynesians aboard Carl when the ship dragged anchor, and it was two or three hours before these men could be landed. It had later be said that Captain Armstrong had remonstrated with Dr. Murray for not simply grabbing these Islander men when they had the chance. Why hadn't Dr. Murray done exactly that? We don't know, but perhaps he was worried that Mr. Young would hear and tell the authorities. On the fifth day at Afate, Dr. Murray, Mr. Mount and Mr. Wilson ignored plantation owner Mr. Young's advice and that of the Carl's experienced blackbirding crew to approach the walled village that was home to the islanders with whom they'd recently been trading. Mr. Wilson was smart enough to stay in the boat. Dr. Murray and Mr. Mount went within 100 yards of the village when 200 armed islanders swarmed over the wall. Dr. Murray pulled out his revolver and then he ran for the boat. Left to defend himself, Mr. Mount grabbed a chief at gunpoint. The islanders then lay down their spears. Some could speak a little English and they told the white man that this had all been a misunderstanding and that everything was all right. Mr. Mount returned to the boat, furious with Dr. Murray, saying, quote, you have acted in a most cowardly manner. We might have all been murdered. If there had been tensions before, the atmosphere now became poisonous. Mr. Wilson would say, quote, I consider from that time Murray conceived a most deadly hatred to Mount. He was a man who vaunted his courage and wanted to be thought plucky by his crew, but this account showed him to be otherwise. He could never forgive Mount for this, but artfully disguised his real feelings for some time. The next morning, though, Dr. Murray reasserted his control. He ordered Captain Armstrong and the crew to make sail and depart, even though the partners had decided they wanted to settle at Havana Harbour. According to Mr. Wilson, Dr. Murray talked them around. He said a few weeks, more or less, wouldn't make that much difference. They might even find better land, and if they didn't, then they could come back. Mr. Wilson's later comment also gives us an insight into the doctor's peculiar charm. Quote, we thought he was acting in an eccentric manner, and he seemed at the time to be otherwise so friendly to us that we were quite deceived by him. Carl sailed further north to Epi, also part of the Vanuatu group. Here, Dr. Murray, without consulting anyone, bought land from the islanders. Partners Mount, Morris, Wilson and Scott were furious because they believed the climate here was bad and that the natives were cannibals. At least, that's what Mr. Wilson would say later. But the cabin boy James Fallon had a different version. Quote, At Epi, Mount, Morris, Scott and Dr. Murray went ashore to buy land and got them to put their hands to some writing, giving them in exchange some calico and trinkets. However it happened, and despite any dissatisfaction, the partners drew lots to divide the land up into parcels. If they were going to make use of what they'd acquired, they'd need labour to work it. Here, I need to make a correction. In part one, I said Carl's hold was divided into three compartments by bulkheads. That wasn't the case. It was one long hold with its four middle and aft sections below corresponding hatches. As part of the preparations for the labour recruiting mission, these hatch doors were replaced with gratings whose bars formed open spaces about six inches square. Enough for ventilation, not big enough for men to get out. On Epi, Carl's crew cut saplings to make platforms and bunks that were fitted into the hold. Providing such rudimentary bedding was part of the labour trade regulations. So if they were inspected, it might look like they were following the law. Of course, Dr. Murray didn't have an interpreter with him, which was also part of the regulations, 
and this, more than anything, tells us that he never intended on voluntary recruiting. How the partners didn't put this together wasn't explained. Carl sailed to the next northern island, Palmer, and anchored some 250 yards offshore. At breakfast after they arrived, according to Mr. Deviscove, Dr. Murray said, quote, I'll tell you what is our best plan. This is a big ship, and we can make it pass for a missionary ship. If we disguise ourselves, we can get some of the natives to come on board and can then put them down below. Dr. Murray was, of course, borrowing from Henry Ross Lewin's slaving playbook. Mr. Deviscove said that Dr. Murray's proposal caused laughter in the cabin, but no one objected to this decision to kidnap people. Instead, the men got into their make-do missionary mufti. Captain Armstrong turned a mate's monkey jacket inside out to show its red lining like some priestly garment. He tucked a book under his arm. Dr. Murray draped a rug around Mr. Wilson's shoulders like a cloak. Mr. Mount put on a smoking cap, Chinese slippers, red dressing gown, and with a Chinese umbrella and a book under one arm, he would strut Carl's deck like some supervising bishop. Others dressed up too, and they went ashore, parading on the beach, delivering fake sermons to each other, tearing pages out of books, and giving them to the natives. Some islanders were enticed onto a boat and taken to the Carl. Here, they were allowed to look around. When they asked to return, they were taken ashore. The entire pantomime was to convince the islanders that they had nothing to fear. But the Palmer people weren't duped, and they didn't board Carl en masse. His cunning plan thwarted, Dr. Murray ordered the expedition northwest to the island of Malakula. Off the coast, Dr. Murray and most of the partners and a trio of sailors took one of the boats out of sight around a point and up into a bay to take soundings for an anchorage. In the bay, these white men got into a battle with islanders in canoes and fired at the men with revolvers. Of this encounter, Mr. Deviscove would say, quote, I hear said they had a fight inside the bay and picked up two men. I did not see the men. What happened to these men who were picked up and any other Polynesians who were hit by bullets would not be further referenced as important. After Dr. Murray and the others had taken the boat to the bay, Palmer men in nine or ten canoes had come out to the Carl to trade. About a dozen of these islanders were on deck when the boat reappeared. As Mr. Wilson would say, quote, When the boat arrived within 200 yards of the brig, I heard Murray shout to the captain to drive the natives out of the ship, as they in the boat had been attacked by canoes in the bay. Mr. Wilson said that Dr. Murray fired over the head of the natives. Mr. Deviscove would say he didn't know who did the shooting. But in the panic, the islanders jumped from the deck of the Carl. Dr. Murray shouted to Captain Armstrong to lower the bigger boat and to get them. Other islanders paddled their canoes away from Carl and used their bows to fire poisoned arrows. Dr. Murray returned fire with his revolver. As Mr. Wilson would recall, quote, There was great excitement and 10 or 12 natives were captured and taken on board. One of them was badly wounded from a gunshot. According to cabin boy James Fallon, it was Mr. Morris who'd fired this bullet. Mr. Wilson's story continued, quote, Dr. Murray, who had also been wounded in the arm by a poisoned arrow, ordered the wounded man to be thrown overboard. Now, Mr. Mount argued that the gunshot islander should be allowed to return to his people in a canoe. Dr. Murray allowed this. The man paddled ashore where 200 of his people stood, 
angry and helpless, unable to do anything but watch as Carl sailed away with their fathers, brothers and sons. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The next morning, according to Mr. Wilson, he, Mr. Mount and Mr. Morris resolved to have nothing to do with any kidnapping. William Scott, however, refused to join their alliance. The three anti-kidnapping partners would make overtures to Dr. Murray, but he was recovering from his arrow wound and was quite drunk. Dr. Murray told them that this was the opportunity they'd been waiting for, and that because they'd all taken part in this first capture, they would now have to go along with it. Mr. Wilson would say, quote, We found it useless saying anything more to him while he was in that state. The following day, Mr. Morris tried again, protesting that Dr. Murray should return the partners to Havana Harbour. Dr. Murray's response was to say how about he set them down on one of these islands, where of course they'd take their chances with the savages. Mr. Wilson would also say that the entire crew and William Scott were on Dr. Murray's side, so it was 12 of them against him, Mr. Mount and Mr. Morris. Further, he would claim these men threatened their lives. An example, quote, I've seen Dowden draw his revolver and threaten to shoot Mr. Morris because he happened to look at the Briggs log, which was lying on the table. It was a tissue of false entries, and we had to submit. This, as we'll hear in the rest of this episode, and in part three, would be Mr. Mount, Mr. Morris and Mr. Wilson's reprise, that they'd had no choice and had tried where possible to argue for mercy and minimise any brutal excesses. Yet others aboard would say they'd been as involved as anybody else. While the capture of the dozen men from Malakula had been opportunistic and improvised, Dr. Murray and his gang thereafter utilised another of Henry Ross Lewin's brutal strategies. That was, using surprise to destroy canoes and then haul islanders out of the water like fish. This plan, Mr. Deviscove said, appeared to have been agreed by Dr. Murray and Captain Armstrong. He wasn't sure if Mr. Mount and Mr. Morris had been there at the inception. It was first implemented at one of the Solomon Islands. Mr. Deviscove said he wasn't sure exactly which one. Quote, We waited for a while and three canoes came off. They brought up, two on the port and one on the starboard side. One boat had been got ready in the meantime to lower down and two men to jump on the gunwale of the canoes to sink them. One canoe was brought up at the main rigging and the other at the gangway. Murray was on the quarter with his arm in a sling and with a revolver in his other hand. Messieurs Mount and Morris, he said, were on the same part of the ship and, quote, could see what was going on if they had any eyes at all. I heard Murray say to the captain to get all ready and he would give the word of command. Murray said, are you ready, captain? And he said, yes. And Murray said, When I say one, two, three, let the men jump on the canoes. This was done. Boats were lowered, one of them under Mr. Mount's command, and 11 or 12 islanders were picked up and stowed in the hold with a dozen or so men already captured. During this second kidnapping, first mate Dowden, who had charge of another boat, shot one of the islanders. 
Mr. Deviscove would say, quote, Some of the other natives came out from the shore and took him away. We were under sail all this time. We made no attempt to take the wounded native on shore. So now they had about two dozen prisoners. From here on, the men of the Carl would evolve their strategy. Jumping into canoes risked the lives of white men. Why not let weight and gravity help them do their dirty work easier and safer? The men of the Carl tied ropes to small cannons. When the next canoes came alongside, they threw the cannons into them. Canoes sunk, islanders captured, the cannons were hauled back for the next assault. The men of the Carl did the same with big lumps of pig iron that weighed about 110 pounds. Cannon and iron were also hidden in sails to be dropped from high above. Carl would loiter a mile or more off-island shores. This was close enough to be seen and to entice traders, but not close enough so that those on shore would see what was happening. First mate Dowden would say that Dr. Murray would read prayers to the men before ordering them to smash the approaching canoes. Hurling and dropping cannons and pig iron meant that islanders were pulled from the water bloody and bruised, and if they resisted, they were beaten. In the space of a week, sailing north and west into the Solomon Islands, these diabolical strategies were used at Guadalcanal, Malaita and Santa Isabel, among other places. They now had some 60 men in the hold. Mr. Deviscove would provide a chronology of these attacks, including the number of men taken and who had command of the boats. In his account, Mr. Mount and Mr. Morris were in the thick of it. Carl then ventured into more dangerous territory at Rubiana Lagoon, which was populated by headhunters and seldom touched by blackbirders. Dr. Murray's tactics worked, and they took another 20 men, bringing their total to about 80. Next, they crossed to Bougainville. During this part of the voyage, Mr. Wilson claimed to have heard the first mate Dowden telling Captain Armstrong to ensure that every man aboard was involved in the kidnapping. The captain replied, quote, There is no fear of that. If I thought any of them would not, I would shoot them or land them on some island. If anybody does not like it, he may go ashore at an island. Dr. Murray said, I won't allow anyone to put our heads into a rope. I'll let them land. Off Buka, in northern Bougainville, the slavers of the Carl found their richest harvest of human misery. Mr. Deviscove said, quote, There were a great many canoes came alongside. They were smashed just as usual, and the boats lowered. We were that busy that I can't tell you how many canoes or natives were got. As fast as we smashed one canoe, another would come up before we could look around. The natives were very bruised when they came on board, and the bilge water of the two boats was mixed with blood. He continued, They looked as if they had fought. Some of the natives had cuts on the head, and others had black eyes. Mount had charge of one boat, and I believe Morris was in it. They got about 40 Bougainville men that first day. Mr. Deviscove said that Mr. Morris did hear remonstrate with Dr. Murray, not about what they were doing, but because he felt the Carl wasn't close enough to the boats to provide protection. Dr. Murray told him that he was doing all he could. Mr. Morris replied by saying, why not let the captain do his job? To which Dr. Murray responded, quote, what captain? I am captain, owner, master and all. The captain is only a mere form on board. I have taken the ship so far and will take her back. By now, Carl had some 130 men in its hold. In the forepart of the ship were those captured from Vanuatu. The aft had been taken in the Solomons. The new captives from Bougainville were being crammed into the middle part of the hold. 
All the white men would say that their captives didn't get on. But why would they have? These men were from different islands with different cultures and languages. The Kaol men would patronisingly call the captives from Vanuatu and the Solomons the good, friendly or the quiet natives. This was in contrast to those from Bougainville who were boisterous and angry. On the third morning Carl was off Bougainville, the white men spied three more large canoes approaching. Each held seven to sixteen men. As Mr. Deviscove testified, Dr. Murray called out, quote, Well, boys, we must look sharp now. We want these natives. We want about 30 more, and the three canoes will just suit us. We must get them before the other canoes come up, or they will be too strong for us. Mr. Deviscove continued, quote, When they came alongside, Dr. Murray gave the signal. The canoes were smashed, and all the natives fell into the water and were picked up in the usual way. While picking them up, we had to defend the boat from the other canoes. We got about 80 or 82 natives altogether at Bougainville in those three days. They now had a huge haul of men crammed into a dark, stifling hold. It was a valuable cargo. Depending on market fluctuations, these men should fetch about £6 each back at Levuka. Ordinary crewmen aboard car were paid around £2 a month but they'd get a bonus of two shillings, what was called a head price, for every islander sold when they reached Fiji. The first mate, Dowden, would get a slightly bigger head price, though Captain Armstrong wouldn't receive any bonus, his salary already reflecting the risks he was taking. But by all accounts, the business partners had no financial interest in the labour recruiting. Carl set sail for Levuka, which might be reached in two months. As Mr. Deviscove recounted of their departure from Bougainville, quote, After getting them aboard, Dr. Murray ordered me to give all hands a glass of grog. More than one glass was drunk. One night after we set sail, there was a bit of a row below among the natives. Someone sang out to them to be quiet, but no shots were fired. The following night, or perhaps two nights later, the Bougainville men started breaking up their bunks. They used saplings to try to smash the hatch above them and to use as spears if they could hit anyone through the small ventilation openings. Mr. Deviscove said he'd been asleep when cabin boy James Fallon woke him up and said the ship was on fire. Mr. Deviscove went on deck and to the main hatch. There he found most of the white men assembled, calling out to the natives to keep quiet. But there was no fire. Mr. Deviscove went back to the cabin for a moment, and while he was away, shots rang out. Running back to the deck, he said he saw Dr. Murray, Captain Armstrong, Mr. Mount, Mr. Morris, and others firing rifles and revolvers down into the hatch. While the white men would later disagree on many aspects of this story, the one thing that they had in common was that they said that the Bougainville men were trying to escape, and that they feared if this happened, they'd be killed. But they... The men of the Carl had been the ones to create this situation. In clear defiance of British law, they had attacked, assaulted, kidnapped and enslaved Bougainville men. They intended to sell them like cattle to masters who'd likely treat them worse than the beasts of the field. After the Bougainville men had been worked to death, they'd be buried in unmarked graves. The Bougainville men were fighting for their lives, but it was a one-sided fight. They were trapped in the hold, beneath that big grated hatch. According to the white slavers, the Bougainville men would fight for a few minutes and then they'd stop after volleys of shots were fired. Then it would start again. 
the white men believed they might be trying to smash their way out through the hull of the Carl. They'd also justify their firing by saying that the Bougainville men were attacking the good natives. Mr. Wilson would say that Mr. Scott and Mr. Mount had tried to get Dr. Murray to allow these good natives up from the hold. Mr. Wilson would say, quote, Murray refused point blank and said he would shoot any man who attempted to do so. I heard the mate say the same thing. In Mr. Devisco's version, quote, I went to the cabin after the first row was quieted. I saw Morris there loading a rifle and Dr. Murray loading a revolver. I asked where the captain was and was told in the lazarette at the grog barrel. I went down and asked him why he was not on deck doing his duty like a man. Mr. Deviscove continued, There was firing off and on during the night. I fired myself once or twice before I saw Morris and Murray in the cabin. Then, quote, At one o'clock in the morning, the mate raised a cry that the natives had charge of the deck, and Dr. Murray called out, Shoot them, shoot them, shoot every one of them. Mr. Deviscove claimed that he sheltered four Islander men in the galley. Meanwhile, Mr. Wilson said that he, Mr. Mount and Mr. Scott had let 50 or 60 friendly natives out of the hold. While the white men would claim that their Bougainville captives had been trying to hurt or kill the other islanders, there was no suggestion from the white men that any of the friendly natives had been injured, apart from one who'd been shot by them. While the second mate Lewis stood over the men from Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands with a musket, the other men of the Carl fired into the hold. There were lulls in the shooting, from between five minutes to half an hour. But for the better part of six hours, guns blazed at trapped, defenceless men. That this was sport, at least to Dr. Murray, might be indicated by the fact that he was heard to sing Marching Through Georgia as he went to reload. This was a popular American Civil War song about the Union Army defeating the Confederates and freeing black slaves. Sailor George Heath, who would admit to his part in the massacre, corroborated the major details. But he added that Mr. Mount had held a bullseye lantern so that the shooters could better see their targets down in the dark hold. Mr. Morris, meanwhile, had reloaded the revolvers and muskets for the men in the cabin. At around 4am, half an hour after the firing had stopped, Mr. Deviscove served coffee to the men. While they were drinking their brews, a crew member entered the cabin to say, quote, why, there is not a man dead in the hold. It simply beggars belief that none of the Bougainville men had already been killed. Rather, this reads like a fabrication meant to exonerate anyone who'd fired down the hatch from actually committing murder. According to Mr. Deviscove, Mr. Mount greeted this revelation by saying it was good news. Soon after this, partner William Scott tried to go down into the hold to supposedly pacify the Bougainville men. One of them thrust a sapling into his chest. There was no serious damage done, but Dr. Murray wasn't having it. At about 6am, he and second mate Lewis went to the bulkhead of the fore part of the hold and used an auger to bore holes. Dr. Murray, first mate Dowden and second mate Lewis then fired their guns through these holes. The doctor had a 10-chamber revolver. The mates appear to have each had five-shot handguns. They also had a ten-shot revolving rifle. In the cabin, hearing this renewed firing, Mr. Mount was supposedly perplexed, asking the others why they should be shooting now. The natives had been quiet for some time. 
Mr. Deviscove would say that Dr. Murray and the mates fired through the bulkhead holes for about half an hour. Sailor George Heath said it might have been as long as 45 minutes. Mr. Deviscove, quote, They had to go get their pistols loaded in the cabin. The bulkhead was full of holes. If they thought there was a native anywhere, they would bore a hole to get at him. In all, they bored about a dozen holes through which to shoot. When it was finally over, they came back into the cabin, and second mate Lewis said excitedly, quote, What would people say to my killing 12 N-words before breakfast? Dr. Murray replied, My word, that's the proper way to pop them off. After breakfast, a ladder was put down into the hold. 20 to 35 Bougainville men came up onto the deck. A few of these climbed the ladder, but most had to be helped. Mr. Deviscove said, quote, They were wounded in the back, arms and legs. In the hold, 35 men lay dead. The rest down there were too badly injured to move, and they had to be hauled up with ropes. This work was done by the so-called friendly natives for which we have to read Islander men who just witnessed a massacre and were in no doubt that they'd be killed too if they resisted in the slightest. Dr Murray ordered the Bougainville men separated according to the severity of their wounds. Mr Deviscove said he, quote, directed that if they were good, they were to be kept, that if they were not much wounded, they were to be put on one side. Dr Murray ordered that the injured men and boys should be tied. Mr Deviscove, quote, Mountain Morris told the natives to do their work. I heard them tell them to lay the wounded down and make fast their hands. Both were armed with revolvers at the time. There were about 45 wounded natives on deck, 10 of them slightly. Their hands were tied with rope yarn by the friendly natives. Dr Murray said to the partners and crew, Well boys, what do you think of doing with these men? Mr Mount asked, What do you think of doing? Dr. Murray said, I think the best we can do is to go leeward of the island and land them there. A man asked, how far are we from land? Dr. Murray answered, I don't know, but not very far. Mr. Mount reportedly said, you have been gaffer all this time, you go and do it. Given their hatred for one another, Dr. Murray may have seen this as a direct challenge to his authority. He said nothing to Mount. Instead, he told four or five friendly natives to pick up a man and throw him overboard. But in Mr. Wilson's account, Mr. Mount had not been present until this moment. That was when he rushed onto deck and said, For God's sake, Murray, do you know what you are doing? In Mr. Wilson's version, Dr. Murray told Mr. Mount to go down into the cabin. Mr. Deviscove did not corroborate this. He said that everyone was present and that no one objected, himself included. Sailor George Heath would also say that no one objected when the first mate, Dowden, chipped in with, There is no use keeping them. We might as well put them overboard. It was a Bougainville boy, distinctive because he had six fingers and toes, who was lifted to the rail by the friendly natives. Other Bougainville men screamed in protest, but Dr Murray pushed the boy overboard. Between 5 and 15 Bougainville men who were still able now jumped up and hurled themselves into the ocean. They'd rather take their chances with drowning or with sharks, and both were far more likely fates than survival, given that land wasn't in sight. The rest of the Bougainville men, hands tied, their wounds ranging from serious to minor, were then thrown into the sea. Dr Murray next ordered the friendly natives to haul up the 35 dead men from the hold 
and toss them overboard too. They were also told to dump all the saplings and poles. In a period of about 12 hours, the men of the Carl, under Dr Murray's leadership, had murdered at least 70 men in cold blood. Their actions had forced another 5 to 15 to jump into the sea to their almost certain deaths. Dr Murray would say, quote, When all the dead and wounded had been thus disposed of, they were found to number no less than 70 souls, who had thus been sacrificed. Of course, as was the case with his account of the Leichhardt recovery expedition, Dr Murray had a very different version of events, which we'll hear in the final instalment of this episode. But he would say that his conscience wasn't troubled by what had taken place. He wasn't troubled by leaving as many as 85 dead men in his wake. This was the same Dr James Patrick Murray who, 10 years ago, had made his name in Australia by undergoing great hardship to do the sacred duty of bringing back the remains of Burke and Wills to Melbourne for decent Christian burial. As the Carls sailed away, the white men knew they had to cover up their crime and that they had to sell their captives into slavery or it had all have been for nothing. The hold was spattered with blood and riddled with bullet holes. Dr Murray ordered the friendly natives to wash, scrub and clean this floating charnel house. It'd need to be whitewashed too, but there was none aboard, so that would have to wait until they reached land. While they'd gotten rid of the evidence as best they could, it had to play on the minds of the men of the Carl that they were carrying a cargo of witnesses. Disposing of these captives to customers meant they'd be dispersed to plantations, and then they'd be less likely to tell their stories to anyone in authority. But as Carl sailed southeast, there was a more pressing question. Even after they sold their slaves, could the white men trust each other with this terrible secret? Five years earlier, Dr Murray had had bitter experience on the Leichhardt recovery expedition. Not because his leader, Duncan McIntyre, had died, but because before he died, he'd sent letters detailing Dr Murray's cowardice and betrayal. Of those aboard Carl, only one, Harry Clark Mount, leader of the partners, was likely to pose any real threat to Dr Murray. But his complicity might, might be enough to keep him quiet. Yet, If it wasn't, if he talked, he'd be able to send Dr Murray to the gallows. Something might have to be done about that before they reached land. Dr Murray was now charting a new course, and in his future lay poison, murder, madness, betrayal and plague. What also lay in Carl's path was the Royal Navy's man-of-war Rosario, again cruising the islands on the lookout for slave ships working the South Seas. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's Slave Ship Massacre. The final instalment will be released on the 7th of October. Between now and then, if you'd like to support Forgotten Australia, I'd love you to tell a friend about the show, or if you've got a minute, leave a rating and review at wherever you get your podcasts. These recommendations really help the show reach new listeners. Of course, Forgotten Australia also has a supporter page at Patreon, where for a few bucks a month, you can get early ad-free episodes, photo galleries, bonus shows, and more. 
To become a supporter, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Before I go, a big shout out to recent supporters, Scott McLaughlin, Peter William Ramsey, and my brother, David Adams. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.